All right, I've been pondering um, some aspects of, of contemporary America and some of the problems that we're seeing. And again, the use of language and the way people are thinking about uh, some controversial subjects and issues that are, um, are we're struggling with in our current contemporary moment. Um, and two of them that jumped out at me is diversity and identity. And generally what we like to think of is that identity and diversity work together, um, and sometimes they do, but generally speaking, and this is what I want to explore um, at pretty much length here, so so hold on, this one might get a little longish, uh, because it is sort of subtle and complicated, and there's lots of nuances that really matter, but often diversity and identity work at cross-purposes to each other, so they, they don't help each other, they actually create problems for each other. <clears throat> so to start... The first thing to think of when you when 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 pondering diversity, and I and I I, I think I've said this before. If not, I should have said it before. One of the great underestimated elements of uh, human societies, human civilizations, is that people are unbelievably diverse. Human uh, predilection, uh, you know, part of its genetic, part of its social, part of its cultural, part of it is opportunity. But human beings have this incredible plasticity about what they can learn and this incredible diversity of innate drives. And when you have this sort of massive diversity, the human expression is, can be just extraordinary. So just think of, you know, the example I like that makes it physical is if you ever watch the Parade of Nations during the Olympics, you see all these athletes and they have these incredible diversity of sizes and skill sets and physical capacities because they're all doing different kinds of sports. And, and in part, they're attracted to the sports because perhaps their particular physique uh, lends themselves to that sport. But also they've chosen those sports and perhaps they don't have the ideal physique or whatever, but they've, they've mastered the arts well enough at least to be in the Olympics, which is pretty damn well. But any of those people on the field, any take the worst person in the Olympics who's going to get last place, you know, whatever reason, they are so vastly superior at whatever it is they're doing compared to just an average person, not someone who's bad, just an average person, as to be aliens. But this is true of just about everybody, the, the, the extraordinary capacity differentiation between individuals in human society is just spectacular. And then the more diverse your society is, the more I would say advanced is the opportunities for people to express that is then reinforced because humans are also remarkably plastic. We can take our capacities, we can practice them, and we can gain skills. We can read a lot and gain knowledge. We can run a lot and and, and become be able to run farther and faster. We can um, you know, practice a musical instrument and become phenomenally just like otherworldly good at it, or even just moderately good at it. Even if you're even just at all good at a musical instrument, you're b better than 90% of the other people because they don't play it, right? I mean, so just the extraordinary variety. And then you think of all of the special skills that people have. Some people are very good at memorizing whatever it is they can memorize. It. Other people, I have a terrible memory, but you know, you could, other people have, uh, you know, visual that, God, they're so good with visual cues. Of course, now you're talking, if you enter the world of painters and sculptors, you know, I've talked to painters and sculptors and, and whatnot for most of my lives. And some of them say, oh yeah, you know, you just see it. And then you, you know, you just sort of 
draw it or you paint it or it just it's there in your mind often. And I'm like, how, I mean, I can't hardly, I can't remember what my car looks like in the parking lot at the supermarket. And they can look at a, a, a tree in, in the Olympic Mountains and then a month later go, you know, I remember that tree and start sketching it. And by God, it'll be that tree, right? So I mean, I, I don't even, I'm sort of lack of words to express the incredible diversity that human beings have the capacity to produce. And then, of course, you have some people who are like, oh, you know, I'm really ambitious. I'm really driven. I really want to achieve things. And other people are like, you know, I'm really not. I'm really happy. I'm laid back. I'm doing whatever it is that I do, and I'm really content. And other people, you know, like, no, like they want to do something new and different all the time. Some people are like, no, I'm really happy just if I can do something consistent, the pattern that makes it comforting for me. And so they want to pursue a pattern and consistency and familiarity, and that brings them joy. So, hey, good on them. Or other people like, no, novelty junkies, right? Like, oh, I want something new and challenging and different. So, hey, good on them, right? So, you know, again, from skill, from predilection to cultural uh, opportunities, the diversity of the human individual is, I mean, it's it's unbelievably massive. And again, if you don't believe me, just look at YouTube, right? Or, or something like that, where there's millions of people doing millions and millions and millions of different things. And there seems to be people interested in just about everything. And that's great. I mean, I'm, I'm not interested in 99.9% .9 of it, but somebody is, and that's wonderful. Um, and so when you see the online forums where people are able to express their interests that, you know, perhaps if they're isolated individuals here and there, but through the magic of the internet, you know, they can kind of conglomerate and maybe there's 10,000 people who are totally fascinated by this or have a particular skill set who really want to become good at, you know, juggling or, you know, whatever it is people are fascinated by. And so that is great. And I always think, like I said, is one way of thinking of societies is the best possible society is a society that allows maximum number of people to express their capacities to the greatest extent, right? You know, this is one way to think about it is, is you have all this human potential. How do you tap it? How do you allow it to thrive? You know, that requires um, diversity. And that's why I said earlier, I gave the example of human beings need a rainforest where there's all these niches and variations and there's trees and there's beetles and there's insects and there's cougars and, you know, not a wheat field. We don't want a wheat field. Human society uh, basically abhors a wheat field and, and given the opportunity will variegate uh, wildly. Now, the problem is, is uh, well, there's several problems here. Um, one of them is historically, of course, ancient societies, and we are the inheritors of ancient societies, the patterns of our civilizations were laid down during the agricultural revolution roughly 10,000 years ago. But at 10,000 years ago, almost no one was in agriculture. Even 1,000 years ago, probably most of the world's population was not involved in agriculture. It's just that the major civilization that we've inherited and we think of was built around agriculture. So it's, you know, so, so those systems have come to dominate, but they're peculiar systems. One, they tend to be very hierarchical. Um, and two, most of the people in the early agrarian societies spent most of their time just slaving in the fields because that's what it took to survive. So they did not have the opportunity to express themselves. Only the elites tended to have the opportunity to express themselves, and they were highly constrained. 
It's not like you could do whatever you wanted because you were rich and powerful. No, 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 no. You were rich and powerful because you were fulfilling all sorts of societal and cultural obligations. And so, I mean, better better to be in the palace, I'm sure, but still, it, our notion of personal expression and freedom was still rare and, and does not develop for a long, long time. Um, and even today, I don't know, it's completely developed, just uh, as we'll see. Because you had to maintain the hierarchy, and your position in the hierarchy required you to do certain things at certain times in certain ways. And to violate that, which, you know, of course people did because they're, they're humans, but tended to bring condemnation. This, what Socrates was put to death basically because he was not behaving as a good citizen. He was a member of the elite, not the maximum elite, but he was a citizen, so he was a member of the elite, but he wasn't playing nice. And the, and the uh, price of not play, paying nice has generally been uh, being exiled, which they offered him, or being put to death, which is what happened to him. And, and that has been the history of human civilization until very recently, I mean, until yesterday, basically. But as um, society has modernized and has specialized and diversified, there's been a massive increase in the opportunity for individuals to express themselves. So this is where you get someone like Beethoven saying, look, I'm not a servant. Mozart was treated as a servant. Beethoven saying, I'm the equal of or superior to dukes and noblemen. And he really argued for that position, and he kind of won that. He made the artist something that could be respected, admired, something to be striven for. Um, this is part of the romantic movement, is to, is to gain the respect, is to say, an artist, the achievements in the arts, that makes you a special person the way the aristocracy was special. Um, to be achieved in athletics in, in the last maybe 100 years, the, the athletes have gained that same status. It is something to be admired. That expression of human capacity has, has gained the sort of merit and admiration that used to be reserved for, again, mostly the aristocracy and the elites. Maybe, it, maybe it's taken over the, the warrior class sort of issue, but, but that sort of um, admirability. Actors and actresses, painters, writers who become famous. I mean, we, the notion of being a famous writer, I mean, that's just such a stupid idea. This is scribes used to not uh, be people, basically. They were servants. And then slowly education levels rose, the need for this diversified. And so those expressions of those talents and have slowly became, got social credit. And then again, again, here's another uh, sort of pathway for people to express themselves. And, and, and that uh, increasing diversity is good. Unfortunately, we still struggle with this. So you'll hear, hear people talk about things like, oh, they use the phrase like alpha male. This is, it drives me mad. And this is, this is a phrase, theoretically, it's kind of very weak sauce, but it's, it's derived from like chimp society and other societies like, oh, we're basically just big primates. In many ways, we are just big primates. So that is correct. But in other ways, we are not. There's not that many opportunities to express yourself in a chimp society, and one of them is to be the dominant male, although this is exaggerated. But anyway, let's just say it's true. Great. We don't live in a chimp society. We live in a human society. There's a massive ways of expressing yourselves. Now, being, being an aggressive dominant male is one of them, but it turns out that almost no one is interested in that. There are few people are, but it's not. But there's this sort of notion that oh, you're supposed to be an alpha male if you're a man. This is what you're supposed to strive for. Well, that might have been true 
you know, 500 years ago when it was be a peasant in the field, be a successful warrior, or be born in the aristocracy. And so if you weren't born in the aristocracy and didn't want to be a peasant, being super aggressive and dangerous was probably helpful, um, depending on the society you're in. But again, even this just depends on where you are, because, you know, China was between its warring periods, had whole you know, centuries of relative internal peace. Always trouble on the borders, but, you know, so they didn't know he used for an alpha male. I mean, Confucius scholars, alpha males, I mean, here they are ruling over vast territories, millions of people, advanced civilizations, building incredible agricultural, pro, um, you know, like um, aqueducts and viaducts and uh, irrigation and dam. I mean, they were doing everything. Were they alpha males? I don't, yeah. I'm, I'm not convinced, right, that that, that that would be an accurate name for what they were doing. Um, but is that this is pr- precisely the opposite of the society in which we find ourselves. That might have been a useful notion a while ago. Hey, if you're playing on a NFL football team, being an alpha male might be a good idea. That might be helpful. It might not, but maybe it is. Might That might be a, a something, a benefit that you want to have. But it's a very cooperative sport. So even there, you know, I wonder... Um, but anyway, but that this this is the kind of nonsense that's a holdover from the notion that we live in these very primitive, very hierarchical, very limited societies, but we don't. Um, and one of the things we struggle with is then how do we rethink about that? We're in a new world, but many of our own thought patterns and our societal structures are borrowed from, you know, not surprisingly, the, the thousands of years of tradition that have preceded this. And this leads to the problem of identity. The more diversity you have, the harder it is for someone to create a, an identity. If, if you have no choice, then you don't worry about identity. If you have only limited choices, then, okay, well, I'm one of those people, I'm one of those people, I'm one of those people, right? If you have massive choices, how do you decide who you are? This is a really profound problem. And it comes in all kinds of different forms. Now, identity politics is often talked about in terms of race, which is part of it, um, particularly in a culture like our own. But it's important to remember that part of that is is in a society that uh, identifies race so strongly, you do not have a choice. You are identified as being an African-American or as being an Asian-American or whatever it is. So those, those identities are put upon you. And so that's one kind of struggle is to say, oh, um, you know, these, these ideas are being put on me. But notice, this is the strange thing. That's why it's racist, is because people are, are being perceived as being a certain way, regardless of their ideas, behaviors, capacities, beliefs, the, the merits of their individuality. Um, and so there's a, a core struggle there. But we like to do this as a society, not just because it's racist, but because we're desperate to know who people are and what their identities are. And race just happens to be a handy uh, and toxic way to go about doing that. But we still want to have identities for ourselves, and we want to be able to identify other people. It's a very normal uh, sort of goal. So when we have these systems that are hierarchical, and institutional institutions that are built hierarchically, of which we have a vast number, of course. You can think, you know, corporations, uh, universities, hospitals, any big, even the, the notion of nationalism tends to be have these very hierarchical ideas. But pick any large institution, even small institution for that matter, but any large institution. Um, and what happens is the key 
to building an identity from an institution and saying, oh, I work at, you know, I'm, I'm, I work at Boeing. I'm a Boeing person or I'm at the university. I'm a university person or any sort of group association, particularly institutional group association, um, tends to require as its primary rule of membership is you believe in the institution. It is you have identified yourself with the larger group. And so uh, respecting, defending, and supporting the group identity becomes central to your identity. That's the key metric there. And so this is, uh, there's a writer many, many years ago who wrote Peters, I think his name was, he wrote all these management books. But I remember he was interviewed one time and he says that there's only a couple of companies in the world that he's ever worked with that actually tried to hire and promote the best people because the best people tended to be disruptive. And I thought, oh, well, that's just crazy. That's nonsense. Of course you want the best people. But just show that I was young and naive. No, it turns out they never want the best people. What they want is a really good person or a good person or at least a serviceable person who believes first and foremost in the institution because the institution, any institution's primary directive is to keep the institution going. That's what it wants to achieve. The mission of an institution is to maintain the institution. And so the selection criteria for membership of an institution is belief in that institution. The sort of extreme version of this is for fraternities and sororities. And people go, oh, you know, they're always trying to crack down on hazing. Well, you, the hazing is not incidental. The hazing is functional. Um, it, if you are a person who are willing to go through this sort of abuse, then you've done a couple of things. One, you've proven that you're willing to invest in the institution. Two, you are providing a benefit and service to the people who have already done that. So they go, okay, I get to abuse you. This is fun. Order you around. This secures my place in the hierarchy if I'm above you. And then you know that next year and the following year, you'll move up in the hierarchy. And then, you know, the, the abuse rolls downhill and it's all great and good. But because you've gone through the hazing, then your investment in the system is like, look, I paid the price to be here. So I don't want anybody else around here who hasn't paid the price. And I want the other people around here to be invested in recognizing that I've paid the price, that I am better than them. I'm, I'm a few years up or however they want to measure these things. And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Once you enter the system, your investment is to keep the system going because that's how you derive benefits from it. And so fraternities and sororities, behave this way. And, and again, so hazing is an institution, uh, incidental. It's like, the, oh, let's get rid of hazing. is impossible. You have to have some form because that's the whole function. How do we sort out the people who aren't willing to invest in being in here and believe just in being here? Um, Mormon church is brilliant at this. This is, you, you go away on a mission for two years. Well, if you spend two years of your life committed to doing this, well, you are now your core. You're like the rest of your life, you're like, I paid the price. I made my investment. Now I want to get the returns on it. I want to derive the benefits of having done this very difficult uh, task um, that may have been unpleasant. They may have not wanted to do it, but they did it. And so now they're like, look, I don't want to disrupt the hierarchy because I now get the benefits of the work I put in by maintaining the hierarchy. And so what does this have to do with diversity? Well, the problem is any kind of diversity is a threat there. So... Um, excluding people is what hierarchies and institutions are all about. You're not a member of my club. 
So when you think about something like the Me Too movement, now it's okay to have women in position of powers, in power, as long as you get to haze them, as long as you get to uh, force them to go through through this these uh, trials and tribulations and abuse them at work, um, generally sexually. And because women, of course, were uh, much lower status and excluded from the workforce, it's very difficult for them to enter these hierarchies, but it's starting to happen more. But that is a totally different issue to say, oh, we want some women in the system who, who will represent the system. That's great. They're probably paying a higher price. They probably had to do a lot more and maybe even suffer more to get there. But hey, they're, they're not a threat to the institution. What's a threat to the institution is something like the Me Too movement that says, hey, look, you have to stop all this abuse. You have to stop all this hazing. You have to stop all of this um, selective criteria that's based on how much people will put up with um, in order to gain the benefits that the institution offers. Well, that's an existential threat. Next thing you'll be doing is trying to hire people based on merit. And now everything's gone mad. That's madness, right? Hiring people on merit, well, that's just crazy. No one, no one generally wants that to happen because, you know, the, you don't know how invested that person is in the institution. But these sorts of things are happening now, right? People go, well, who should, who should get the job? The person who served the longest or the person who is most skilled? Is diversity itself have a value in an institution? If so, well, we want people from the outside to come in, people who aren't like everybody else here. Ooh, but the whole point of the institution is to make sure everybody is like everybody else. Um, you know, so it's this, it, it's, a, it's a huge fundamental existential tension between, ah, if I have an identity with a group, I want to maintain the coherence of that group. And I don't want other people in here who are going to be different and mess it up. It could be racially different. could be women. It could just be, I think more importantly, simply a different outlook. This is going to disrupt the whole system. Um, one way to think of that outside of the uh, of the racial and the, and the women's system is Silicon Valley was basically founded under the idea that the old hierarchical system was no good. You know, the engineers and the intellectual sort of capital of producing um, innovation, I guess technological innovation, used to be sort of yoked to corporate structures. And those corporate structures are like, look, engineers work in an office over there. They produce things. We pay them an hourly or a yearly salary, and you know if you're good, you can get promoted and get a wage increase or whatever. But you are like Mozart. You're a servant. You just work here. All of the money, all the benefits, all the respect will accrue to the executives who went to business school or however you became an executive at one of these companies because we're the right sort of people. Engineers are not the right sort of people. Um, and uh, basically, eventually, the people, particularly the founders of Intel and others, said, you know what? Forget this. <laughs> we think this is a stupid system. We, we're producing the goods. Well, I think we think we can you know, do the other parts. Um, and we want to reap the benefits and the rewards of the technological innovations that we think we're coming up with. And so, you know, sort of ipso facto, wave your wand, Silicon Valley. Uh, has you know it's a crazy everyone talks about it. it's a crazy structure and money everywhere and it's 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 been incredibly disruptive it's been incredibly disruptive because it said no we're not going to play the hierarchical game the way it used to be played i don't know if it's true today but i, I think it was about 8 years ago a study came out um and they and they said that there were no i think it was no harvard mbas Harvard or Yale? Anyway, one of the Ivy League schools, there were no MBA students, graduates, who were going into Wall Street. 
they were all going to the West Coast to Silicon Valley or other tech companies. So, you know, what a total transition to go, hey, we want to be the kind of people who are over here. And then they said, oh, wait, all the juice is over there. And so now it transferred. And of course, now the Silicon Valley developed their own social structures and elite structures and hierarchies and all that. But, it, but what happened, I mean, that's incredibly disruptive to an entire industry. And so um, when you change the way identities can be built and you rename, so the work hasn't changed, they're still doing the same thing, they're, you know, developing chips or designing computers or programming. But the way they're identified, the way they've labeled themselves has been transformed. Um, and you know, that incredible amount of power comes with that. And so this, that, that revolution of self-identity or group identity is kind of what the stakes are when you think about identity and diversity. They basically created a new type of important, valuable person. Not an artist, not a CEO, not an investor, not a warrior, not an aristocrat or a president or a politician. No, now they're a tech person. So this whole new sort of realm opened up where people are able to say, yes, this is who I am. This is what I do. And it turns out that there's a fair number of people who want to be there, who really do find joy and self-expression and opportunity um, in that environment. And so, you know, all to the good in some ways. But again, Again, now what happened is it turns out that tended to be heavily male, um, and now they're really struggling with diversity issues because if you bring in people from a different culture, and this different culture is just not from the tech culture, wow, you get these culture clashes, and all the big companies are, of course, struggling with this, and you know you can read the articles out there. But notice this is a fundamental tension between... Uh, do we want different people around with different ideas, different outlooks, different capacities, or do we want people who are more or less share a commonality? If you want to define yourself as a member of a group, then what you want to do is uh, make sure that group has that commonality, and then you want to exclude people who are different. If you want maximum diversity, then individuals have to be increasingly sort of on their own to develop their own sense of identity, which is really difficult. And in fact, society often doesn't allow you to do that. I mean, there are all kinds of restrictions uh, on, on, on those opportunities, although they're greater than they've ever been. And again, it's always important to remember that some identities are put on people, right? So that you, there's some choices that are difficult to make because society says, oh, um, you know, if you're a man, you're this way. If you're a woman, you're, you're this way. And you see there's a lot of struggle about this. And so, again, the fundamental tension between trying to build identity and trying to maintain diversity. Um, but we need group identity, you know, because we are social people. We're social animals. And so it's not crazy for institutions and systems to develop this sense of culture. It just tends to run counter to uh, notions of diversity, which is why it's such a vexing, vexing issue and, and, and unlikely to go away anytime soon because it's just a core um, problem right at those crossroads um, that probably can't, you know, it's not like soluble, it can be addressed, different approaches can be better or less good, but there's always going to be that tension between um, expression of the individual's capacities and a desire for identifying with a group, and then the group's desire not to be too diverse, because then how do you define the group if it's just a member that includes everybody? Right? Who do we get to exclude? Who do we get to include? Ba -da 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 -da. These kinds of dynamics. 
And this leads pretty much directly into the swamp of cultural appropriation um, because the cultural elements here, if you think in larger than institutionals, but it works very much in the same way, uh, is you know you have a history of various aspects of cultural uh, appropriation, but it's hard to know um, you know where you know it's it's, it's a range. It's a, it's a whole you know, uh, range of possibilities here. So you have m moments like like the Elgin Marbles uh, being in England. That's, you know, pretty clear. You have the early 20th century or even <laughs> mid to late 20th century um, exploitation of black uh, musicians and songwriters. They just basically took the music and sold it and did not uh, give them any acknowledgement or money. And so, you know, you sort of have cultural theft. So good, you know, that's clear, right? That one's at least easy to identify and go, yeah, we oughtn't to do that. Although as far as I can tell, that's what the music industry is built on, isn't it? I mean, it's just sort of to exploit as much as possible. Every artist take their stuff and not compensate them for this. This is how Prince became um, the artist as a symbol, right? Prince, the artist formerly known as Prince, uh, made himself a symbol to escape sort of exploitative record contracts. So, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, desire to exploit seems to be built into some industries like the record industry or music industry. But, you know, those are much clearer, but it gets fuzzy. I mean, it is the, you know, uh, you get the, the question of, you know, who has the power, who doesn't have the power. But at its core, you know, you it's very, it's the diversity again versus identity. If, certain people have to be certain ways to be part of a culture, this is very limiting to them. If society or groups in society tell them they must be that certain way, well, of course, this is the opposite of diversity. Conversely, if people say, oh, this is ours and you can't share it or be inspired by it or use it, ah, well, see, now that is the reverse of that. That is simply limits the ability of other people to express their capacities. Um, and so there's all kinds of examples on every level here, but one to think about is like Seiji Ozawa, the great conductor, 20th century classical music conductor. And, you know, should a Japanese person be allowed to conduct Western classical music? I mean, it seems to me, sure, absolutely. That's a great thing. Um, but so then people say, well, this is a dominant culture versus a, you know, a not dominant culture. And it's like, I'm not sure, you know, you would ever count Japanese culture is not dominant, um, certainly as an imperialist history. Um, and then, but it just seemed like we criminals to, to not allow him to do that. So then you go, okay. And I don't, I don't think most people mean that, by the way. I'm just saying, you know, trying to go to the other extreme and go, yeah, well, that doesn't, that would seem silly. But if a 15 year old girl in Ohio today becomes inspired by Japanese classical music, should she be able to go to Japan and study or study here and compose and perform and you know be conduct in that traditional music genre? It would seem to me criminal not to allow her to express her capacities and interests in that way. And then you get into these other vexatious areas. Um, if, if someone listens, I was talking to somebody about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they said, you know, if someone listens to, say, Bob Marley, and they get inspired by reggae music, where do you draw, you know, where does the line get drawn? At what, when is inspiration, hey, I want to become a, a, a reggae artist, you know, I love the music, um, and, and I'm inspired by it. And so you have a, an artist like Alba Rosi, who did just that. I think he was Italian, but he just he heard reggae music and thought, you know, this is the greatest thing, this is what I want to do with my life. 
And he goes to Jamaica and starts doing that. And people have accused him of, oh, this cultural exploitation, all this. Or is it just that he was really loved and inspired by Jamaican music? Um, apparently, there was even controversy about whether Bob Marley should wear dreadlocks because he was not the right kind of Rastafarian. So then you get all of these notions within these groups, right? And so trying to figure out where the lines are drawn, right? Being sensitive to say, oh, this culture, I mean, I mean, I guess it's the fundamental question is, can cultural things only belong to certain people? One of the problems about this is cultures that aren't shared, that aren't dynamic, die. That's basically the rule. And so the primary modus of keeping a culture alive is for it to be shared. And in fact, one of the big things that dominant cultures have done historically is try to stomp out other cultures, right? And so the way you do that is you do not allow them to express their culture capacities or, um, you know, music, clothes, uh, religion, writing, whatever it is. You just you just either ignore it or you underfund it or you make it illegal um, and just you do everything you can to, to press it down. So the reverse of that is to, to share, to experience, to support, um, to... Uh, give resources. Mostly, it's human capital. To if you're if you want your music to be alive, you need people to listen to it and people to play it. And so, you know, if 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 this Italian guy again, I think Alvarosi was Italian. If this Italian guy goes to Jamaica and is, and is inspired to do this, and then goes to Italy and inspires other Italians, he's helping keep that tradition alive. He's not uh, threatening it. If only a small group of people are allowed to participate and nobody else is then you're going to get a, a cultural form that's very much more likely to die and go extinct. But of course, there's a difference between sharing um, and expressing and supporting and taking, right? So then, you know, again, and where those lines are, wow, they're so fuzzy. You know, it's, it's often, sometimes Elgin marble's not tricky at all, but sometimes it is. But I think the peculiar sensitivity at this moment around these issues is this notion of identity. Because a lot of people want to say, well, who am I? Well, these cultural things are mine. And if nobody else can have access to them, then I know who I am. Right? It's an, it's, it's an attempt to uh, uh, identify what's yours and make it valuable by making it scarce and making it mine. And then if only I can wear these shoes, then I'll know who I am. By the way, this has a long history Back in the Middle Ages in European cities, uh, China had something similar. Um, your whatever career you were in, you wore a, a career. I mean, like whatever job, like you're a barrel maker or a leather worker. In, in certain cities, you would wear a particular kind of clothes. And if somebody who was not of that guild or union or a specialty was wearing those was wearing those clothes, I mean, that was a fine, or they would just beat you up, or they would exile you. Right, because those clothes, that identity, that outfit, this profession is ours, and nobody else can take it. A really powerful, powerful group identity. And they defended it, you know, unto the death. Literally, they would kill people who they thought were trying to pass themselves off in these specialties or as these kinds of people. Same thing with, you know, the, the, the weird... Uh, lots of religions are obsessed with clothes, and it seems to be they're obsessed with clothes because it's a visual identifier of hierarchy within these hierarchical systems. 
Um, it's one way you can identify hierarchical and non-hierarchical religions basically easily is a hats. If they're into hats, it's a hierarchical religion. If they're not into hats, then they're not a hierarchical religion or, or other sorts of clothing manifestations. But for some reason, it seems to be hats um, that allow you to identify that. And so who gets to wear a particular kind of hat or who gets to wear a particular color, royal purple? Um, in China, the, the, the Mandarin ate and the Confucian scholars often had special clothes that they could wear. If somebody else wore it, you know, you're probably impunishable by death. You're going to get in a lot of trouble. So that notion of creating identity through exclusivity uh, is old. I mean, this goes way back, but again, notice this works against diversity. It works against the opportunity of somebody to say, wow, that looks powerful and interesting and inspiring, and I'm moved by it, and I want to participate in it. Um, and then people say, well, no, 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 because that's for other people. And generally this is done, um, as they say, across power barriers. And they say, well, if you're from a marginalized or a weak culture, then basically you can do whatever you want. But if you're from a powerful culture, then you can't participate or do things with marginalized or weak cultures. Um, and it tends to be a lot of focus on the power dynamic, which is not totally unreasonable, but I think one needs to be careful there. Because you know what, you know these power dynamics change. Uh, as I, or somebody was talking about this in terms of of Spain, and I was like, you know, Spain was like a world dominant power. I mean, that's why Spanish is the what third most spoken language in the world, I believe, is Spanish. I mean, it's not because Spain wasn't it was a marginalized culture. It's because Spain was the culture. That's why everybody learned Spanish, right? They spread that stuff everywhere. I mean, that's one of the great you know, cultural movements and powers in the last 500 years. And so, you know, you know, yeah, how you define all that. Again, sometimes it's very clear if you take, you know, American tribal societies and say you can't speak your language, which is historically true. Well, that's, that's not, I guess that's cultural appropriation. That's really just cultural killing. That's trying to kill their culture. But if you're a tribe and you want your language to survive, the best way to do that is to get as many possible people to speak it as you can. And if you say, oh, we don't want non-tribal members to speak our language, you're committing, you're committing cultural suicide is what you're doing. Because unless your tribe is vibrant and growing and adding lots of members, chances are that language is going to go dead. And so, you know, this, that's the threat when you try to limit diversity and limit access is you, you sort of, uh, you basically start killing the thing that supposedly you're trying to protect and love. And so that's why when you think about identity and diversity, it leaks over into all kinds of problems, a cultural appropriation just being one example. Um, when you think about diversity in uh, other fields, I mean, the cultural field is obvious, but again, back to, you know, business, they say, oh, you know, business say, yeah, we want to do, you know, more lending uh, to broader range of people. And they go, sure, you know, a lot of businesses are talking about this now. Um, however, they want you to have the same paperwork, right? They want you to have the same kind of background. They want you to have the same kind of assets as the people they're used to lending to, which is, of course, exactly the opposite of lending to a diverse amount of people, right? I mean, it is, you know, roughly speaking, the opposite. If you really wanted to create, you know, a diverse business investment program, you know, invest in people who have absolutely no business capital. Give them a couple of million dollars and see what happens, right? Invest in the people, not in the people who have the, the capital, but when you have a capital-based investment system, well, once you, of course, a group of people have the capital, well, they get the capital investment because you go, oh, you have to put up so much capital to get the loan. 
The joke is, of course, it, the bank will not give you a loan if you need the loan, but if you don't need a loan, they will happily loan you money. Now, this is, you know, it's a, it's a joke, but it does have a certain element of truth to it because who wants to take these risks on people who are doing different things in different ways and when they're different kinds of people, however, however that is. And so, uh, yeah, diversity, it is a huge problem. But I think, again, back to identity issues, I actually look at all this and I think it's quite hopeful and I'm really op optimistic. I actually find the whole debate inspirational. And it is a debate, by the way. I don't think this is something that can be concluded because the reason I think so much of this is being argued about is coming to the fore now, um, besides all the cultural tensions and insecurities that we're feeling, is that there is more opportunity to, to, for people to express themselves than there ever has been. There are more uh, modes for people to um, have their innate capacities and their learned skills and their desires and drives expressed in a freer, uh, more open society. And that is what is creating the tension. And so people are like, oh, now I really feel the threat to my identity. Now I really have to think about my identity. Oh, now I really do need to embrace diversity and, and, and look at myself and say, you know, how, how is diversity fitting in, into my life? Where have I pressed down even perhaps my own capacities because it didn't fit in so well with the culture that I had understood that I was inhabiting? And all those questions are pushed to the fore quite dramatically by freedom. So while it's uncomfortable and maybe filled with tension and causes a lot of thinking and reflection and angst to try and think through these issues and live through them, not just think through them, we're living through them, um, I, I, I fundamentally believe that the core of this is people are worried about identity when they don't have identity. People are worried about diversity when diversity is actually uh, possible. You don't worry about diversity when it's not available. You worry about it when it is available. You don't worry about identity when you have identity. You worry about identity when you don't have identity. And so I think that the, the press, the, the growth, the opportunities for diversity are really what's fundamentally driving a lot of this. And it is a bit crazy making, and it does create lots of cultural and social tension. But if you understand it as growing out of the increasingly dynamic and increasingly diverse world in which we, in, which we live— or think about it, where you can live in, well, pre-pandemic, and I'm assuming someday there'll be post-pandemic, you can live in, you know, virtually anywhere in the world. You can learn any languages. You have access to cultures from all over the place. You have, you know, just amazing opportunities that a hundred years ago, even the, the best educated, wealthiest people from the wealthiest countries pretty much did not have. They just almost did not exist. It's uh, it's just crazy to think about. If uh, The historical example that always springs to mind is Alexander Humboldt, who traveled a lot of the world, but he had a lot, there were places he could not get to because even though he was as wealthy as anybody, well, he blew it all doing this, so he, most of his life he was super wealthy, incredibly well-connected, knew all the right people, had all the education, had everything. Well, they just wouldn't let him in certain countries. They just weren't allowed. You just can't come in. You know, we didn't. We don't know why you're here. We don't want you here. So he snuck into some of them. Um, but, you know, he got ambassador passes to some of them. But even, you know, just that freedom of travel and, and cultural experience is so much greater than it's ever been. Plus the fact that we're much more likely to encounter people unlike us than has ever been true in history. We can see them online. We can talk to them online. We can see them on TV. Uh, we can go to those countries. They can come to our countries. Um, and so... You know, the world has just gotten bigger, more diverse, more dynamic. 
And that sort of diversity, which I would argue is to the good, does, however, create these tensions that we're going to have to work through. So working through the tensions may be not that much fun and often quite disturbing, but I think the fundamental issue is the energy that's driving that is this growth um, in world diversity and the opportunity for individuals to express themselves in just a vast array of ways um, that maybe if finally or at least is beginning to match the incredible capacities and innate diversity of the human being. Um, when we've got 7 billion plus people, there's just so many opportunities that are needed so people can express all of that, um, all of the, the individuality that's in them. And so perhaps our cultures are finally beginning to reach a complexity uh, where an increasing number of people can really um, start expressing and experiencing their own capacities. And that would be powerful, amazing, but of course also disturbing. So thank you.